Well, welcome to Bible Center Church. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We also want to welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, we'd love to have you visit with us anytime you're in the Charleston area, but we are really glad you're here. It's a joy to introduce our scripture reader this morning. Uh, John Abraham has been at Bible Center for 35 years. He's married to Suzanne, and they have three children, J.R., Carson, and Katie. It's a busy house at the Abraham house. Uh, every Sunday, we want to introduce our scripture reader and tell you how they worship, belong, and serve. You'll see those three words uh, around Bible Center more and more over the years. Of course, they worship with you here on Sunday morning at one of our services. Uh, but John and Suzanne belong in a group. They actually lead a community group in their home. They serve in a number of ways in children's ministry. John's an usher. He's also on the board at Union Mission, our partners in ministry. Uh, so we're glad to have John read the scriptures with us. Please grab your Bibles or your Bible app, and we'll dive into the Word together. Please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Have you ever been shocked? Have you ever been shocked? By shocked, I don't mean amazed, but I literally mean shocked. Have you ever been electrocuted? I remember once I was trying to help my grandpa with the fence around his garden there in Clay County, and I told him that I could turn off the electric fence. I'd seen him do it many times. You pull the lever, pull the switch. looked very easy. What I didn't realize was that above the switch, the line was still alive, and when my knuckles took up the switch, it landed right on the fence, on the line, and it's amazing what electricity will do to you and cause you to have to even change clothes sometimes. Yesterday, I learned that Pastor Caleb's uncle had been struck by lightning three times. Somehow, I didn't know that about him, and he said his uncle is still relatively fine. Uh, he relatively, he says he talks a little louder than normal now, uh, but being shocked is uh, something that uh, certainly changes lives. I heard a story this week about a doctor, a lawyer, and an electrician. Unfortunately, all three had been sentenced to death row, and as the doctor was about to go into to the electric chair, the doctor was asked, do you have any last words? He said, No. And so the executioner threw the switch. Nothing happened. According to the law of the land, he had to immediately be set free. It was considered an act of God. 
And so next they brought the lawyer in. The lawyer sat in the chair. They strapped him in. Do you have any last words? And he said, no. The executioner flipped the switch and nothing happened. And so by law, they had to let him go. Finally, the electrician sat in the chair and they asked him, sir, do you have any last words? He says, if you flip the red switch and the, and the uh, blue switch, this thing might actually work. Well, that joke was a lot funnier in my head than it was in real life. <laughs> Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God that caused Jesus to rise from the grave that we looked at two weeks ago. It's the same power of God that caused Jesus to ascend back into heaven that we looked at last Sunday. And now by the time we get to Acts 26, it's that power of God, the gospel, that had taken this good news, this message from a small band of believers in Jerusalem all the way to Rome, some 3,000 miles away. The distance of an eight-hour plane ride, the gospel message had impacted people, had impacted cities, and was beginning to transform an empire. This morning, I invite you to ask a question with me. Why did the gospel transform Rome? Why did the gospel impact an empire? And why can the gospel impact the city of Charleston? How and why can the gospel change Charleston? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I invite you to follow along in your notes, on your app, or in your bulletin as we let God's Word answer that question. Number one, if you're taking notes, the gospel can change Charleston because it's extremely personal. It is extremely personal. To summarize the first half of Acts 26... We find that after Jesus ascended, the word spread, his good news spread. And many unlikely people began to believe in Jesus. One of those unlikely people was Saul of Tarsus. You see, Saul had grown up believing the law, believing in Moses. His motives were pure. His heart was sincere. At least it was sincere towards the idea of the law. And Moses dedicated his life to destroying, persecuting, killing Christians because he truly saw them as a threat to God. He believed that Jesus was an imposter. There's no way Jesus could be the fulfillment of all that Moses spoke of. Moses, excuse me, Paul would have been a lot like Negan from The Walking Dead. If you've ever watched The Walking Dead, this is what the first century church thought of Saul before we called him Paul, and his life was changed. On one of his trips to Damascus, the apostle, or Saul, before he was the apostle Paul, saw a great light. Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26 says, the light was so bright that it shone round about him, and he and all of his companions hit the floor. They hit the pavement. Now, the image of the light isn't just that it was a light shining brightly from heaven, but the image, the Greek wording is that it shone round about him. It's like a light cloud. If you've been in church a long time, maybe you've seen the old pictures or the flannel graphs of the light that used to go around the temple or inside the tabernacle. We call that the glory of God or the Shekinah glory of God. 
And so this is more than just a bright, sunny day. The Apostle Paul, before, before he's converted, is in the presence of Jesus, and he's blinded by his glory. Now, to put this in context a little bit, it's helpful to go back and remember what we talked about last week about the ascension. Remember when we said that Jesus' ascension wasn't to a galaxy far, far away. And Jesus didn't go to heaven, first star on the right, straight on till morning. But Jesus stepped literally from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm. So Acts chapter 26 can be seen somewhat as a reverse. Here Jesus is stepping back from the heavenly realm, and he's at least speaking back into the earthly realm. We saw it in Acts chapter 7, whenever Stephen was stoned, or in Acts chapter 8. We see it now in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 26. The apostle Paul is in the presence of Jesus, and he asks this question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul knows this is supernatural, and he knows it's the Lord, and he asks a unique question. He says, who art thou, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. The appearance of Jesus changed Saul's life forever, but it brought fierce opposition. C.H. Spurgeon says, the devil never kicks a dead horse. And so while Paul's life was changed and he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, the devil wouldn't leave Paul alone. Rome didn't mind so much if you believed in in Jesus or really any god. There were thousands of deities in pagan Rome, so long as it wasn't a threat to Roman society. But when Christianity crossed the line by saying that you could not bow to Caesar as Lord, you could pay your taxes, you should pay your taxes. You should be a good neighbor, you should be a good citizen, but never consider Caesar your Lord. It began to impact the culture. And so people like Saul, who became Paul, became an enemy, not only by the Romans, but also by the Jews. There were still people who thought Jesus was an imposter. They thought the Apostle Paul was crazy, and that he had flipped his switch, and he was off into an occult. And the Jews hated Paul and opposed him. While he was in Jerusalem, they began to beat him illegally. They performed a mock trial in Jerusalem. And the image of Acts chapter 24 and 25 gives us the picture somewhat of the way Jesus was wrongly beaten and wrongly tried at his mock trial. And then we find that the mayor of Jerusalem comes and he breaks up the party And he has soldiers take the Apostle Paul into house arrest. And see, while the mayor of Jerusalem didn't care much about Jesus and certainly didn't care much about the Apostle Paul, he did care about peace. And if you were the mayor of a Roman province or a Roman city, it was your job just to keep peace. And so they took the Apostle Paul to house arrest until they could sort things out. He was in house arrest for a short time, and the mayor sent him to the governor by the name of Felix, He sent him with 200 soldiers. And for two years with Felix, the Apostle Paul continued in house arrest. The governor brought his wife, Drusilla, to meet with the Apostle Paul. The two of them would meet with Paul often. And while the scriptures never tell us that he became a Christian, Paul for two years gave him the gospel. 
After a couple of years, Felix was finally replaced by a governor by the name of Festus. Any Gunsmoke fans in here? You can't make these names up, right? Felix, and then, and then there's Festus. And Festus doesn't know why Paul is in house arrest, just like Felix didn't know why he was in house arrest. But after a short time, Felix assumed, or Festus assumed, he needed to send him to trial. And the crime that he was supposedly had committed was in Jerusalem. And so he decided to send him back to Jerusalem to be tried. Well, Paul knew what would happen. If he went back to Jerusalem, it wouldn't be a fair trial. Jesus didn't get a fair trial. He almost was killed before the mayor of Jerusalem stepped in. And so Paul played his Roman citizen card. Paul threw down the card that says, I appeal to Caesar. And he had to be taken instantly or directed to Rome. Well, Festus didn't know what to put on the paperwork. You didn't just send somebody to Caesar without laying out the case of why they were to be tried. And so Festus is trying to think of what can I write on his paperwork. He's not sure about this guy. He doesn't understand the Jews. And his good buddy King Agrippa comes to town. Now in Acts chapter 25, it says that Agrippa came to town with great pomp. Uh, the word there is the idea of fantasia. Literally in the Greek, it's fantasia. He came with all the prancing horses, all of the glimmering swords. He came with all of the marching soldiers. And the Apostle Paul got an audience with King Agrippa. King Agrippa, if you're taking notes, it's important to connect the Bible and history. King Agrippa comes from a long line of Herods. It's a dynasty, a lot like we would say the dynasty of the Bush family or the Roosevelt family or the Kennedy family. And the Herods had made deals with Rome to stay in power. There were four Herods. There was Herod the Great. Do you remember what Herod the Great was guilty of? He was guilty of trying to kill all the babies, including Jesus. Herod the Great's son was Herod Antipas, who murdered John the Baptist. Jesus called him a fox. Herod Agrippa was the one who arrested Peter. And then his son, Herod Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. This is who came and heard the Apostle Paul speak and share Christ. Now, I've laid all that as foundation to ask this question. If you were had the opportunity to speak before a king what would you say? If you had the chance to give the gospel in the presence of a king, how would you go about giving the gospel? And this week as I'm studying through this, trying to think, what can we bring out? What does God want to emphasize from Acts 26? The thing I kept coming back to was that Paul made it personal. You know, Paul, over and over again in the Bible, when he stood before a king, he stood before a ruler, he stood before an audience, he would go back to sharing his what? His testimony. He just shared his story. The greatest tool the Apostle Paul ever had was his testimony, his story in the gospel. And the greatest tool that you will ever have when you witness is your testimony, a tool in the gospel. Do you realize God gave you your story for a specific reason? Just for a specific reason. I used to not like my story. I've said this a couple of times. You know, my story is kind of boring. 
You know, I used to hear people, I'd go to these youth rallies as I was traveling around, and I'd hear people talk about, man, you know, they'd been in prison 20 times. And man, you know, they had done, committed this crime, and they had wrecked 14 motorcycles. And I thought, man, I'd just like to have one motorcycle. You know, man, that is a sweet gig. Man, what a story you've got. And here I get up and give my story. Well, I was five. I was in Awana. And... I knew I was a sinner because I had said something, you know, and I just wanted that testimony. And I shared a few weeks ago how that really my story is more of one not knowing the exact date or minute that I became a Christian. And even a few weeks ago when I shared that story, I'm thinking, you know, what kind of story is this? I was five or so. I prayed with my mom to receive Christ. Then I'm 10 and I'm at camp and and the speaker made it so simple and plain. And I'm like, Lord, if if I'm not saved, I... Lord, save me now. And then, you know, when I'm 12 and 13 and 4, did I pray the right words? And then finally, in my early 20s, I realized that my salvation doesn't depend on the words I prayed. It doesn't depend on the moon phase, the day that I supposedly got saved. What it depends on is my faith in Jesus Christ right now. And I was preparing the sermon this week, yesterday after the membership class, one of the, we had 35, 36 people or 31 people in this room yesterday, plus our elders and our staff who were saying, hey, I want to pursue looking to membership at Bible Center. And one of the participants after the class yesterday said, hey, I've been meaning to tell you that story you gave about your testimony. And she's like tearing up and I'm thinking, man, my story's not that great. She goes, that story was for me. Because I've always wondered, did I say the right words? Do I, do I, I can, did, was, it, was it just, did I, should I have come forward? Should I have come forward twice? And if you're growing up in church, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it. And she said, that story was for me. And I'm just now learning that my story is the greatest weapon I have for Jesus Christ. And so is yours. Imagine what would happen this week if we just went and shared our story with one person. Say, let let me tell you how jacked up I am. And let me tell you what Jesus is still doing in my life. We could revolutionize Charleston because the gospel is personal. Number two, why else can the gospel change Charleston? Well, number two, the gospel is rational. The gospel is rational. In verse 22 and 23... Paul tells King Agrippa this, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Acts 26, 22. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. If you're taking notes, it isn't on your outline, but it's biblically rational, first of all. Paul shows King, the King Agrippa that Christianity makes sense, first, at the Old Testament level. You know, in the Old Testament, there are 300 prophecies surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a conservative number, but about 300. It talks about the place Jesus would be born. 
It talks about uh, the, the era, the season. They had it almost narrowed down to the date. Depending on who you talked to, they were very, very close. That's why they believe the Magi who came from afar knew that something was going to happen in this part of the world at this approximate time. Reading Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there's 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ that all came fulfilled in his life. This past week, I learned that if one person had eight prophecies come to pass about them, you have a chance in one in 10 with 17 zeros of that coming to pass. That's just eight prophecies. If one person had 48 prophecies about them that were fulfilled in their life, it would be one in 10 to the 157th power. Jesus didn't have just eight He didn't have 48, he had over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in his lifetime. It's biblically rational, but it's also, if you're taking notes, it's logically rational. In verse 24, notice how he appeals to logic. For you thinkers, verses 24 through 27 will will speak to you. He says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. The Greek word for out of your mind is literally maniac. Paul, you are a maniac. You have flipped out. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded, and I have this underline in my Bible, none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Agrippa, you've grown up in this part of the world. Agrippa was, King Agrippa II was seven or eight years old. You can't narrow it down to about one year. Seven or eight years old when Jesus was crucified. So as a seven or eight-year-old boy, he had grown up hearing about, so he was four when Jesus started his public ministry. He would have heard about this radical, this revolutionary who was raising people from the dead, turning water into wine, doing crazy miracles. None of this was done in a vacuum. I mean, imagine you're at a dinner party. You're at a Roman dinner party. You're not among believers, but you're among people who love to talk about society. And at the dinner party, somebody says, oh, did you hear about that, that madman Jesus that they crucified in Jerusalem? Boy, he had a lot of followers at one time. Boy, he was crazy. And somebody says, well, you know, he, he may have been crazy, but I was in Bethany. And no matter what you say, Lazarus had been dead so long that he stunk or stank, whatever word it is. He smelled bad. But all I know is Jesus came to town and this guy who was obviously dead got up and walked. The bandages fell off. The wrappings fell off. And all I know is somebody who was dead is alive. They had heard about his, they couldn't explain it, but they knew he was doing crazy things. And so Paul appeals 
to, to his rational mind. You know, that's okay for us to do as Christians. If somebody asks you, hey, why do you believe what you believe? Please do not say. Please don't say. At least don't tell them you're from Bible Center Church. Don't say, don't, don't say well, I just know it in my heart. Please don't say that. If, if you don't know, you know, it's better for us just to say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. I'll ask somebody. Somebody will get me an answer, and I'll get back to you. And I understand we can't argue people into the kingdom of God, but this business of Christians being so wishy-washy or grounded in our feelings or our thoughts or our visions or our dreams and not rooting our faith in the rational facts from the Word of God will make zero impact. People will see right through it. The baloney meter of millennials is off the chart. They know when we're talking baloney. You know, I have more respect for somebody who says, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that even what the Bible says actually happened. I have a hard time accepting all of these facts. I can respect somebody who says that. I really can't. Really can. what, I, what I have a hard time with is when somebody says, well, I know what the Bible says, but I just don't like Christianity. You know, I don't like the beliefs of Christianity, so I don't have to believe it. Well, it really doesn't matter whether we like it. The better question is, is this true? On my Facebook and my, Facebook and my Twitter this week, I posted the testimony of an atheist. It's, it's there for your uh, uh, enjoyment, your encouragement. A.N. Wilson wrote an article, Why I Believe Again. I just picked out some highlights for this morning. This particular gentleman had grown up in the Billy Graham era, hated Billy Graham, described in one of his articles, uh, Billy Graham's crusades, thought they were crazy. Uh, he hated C.S. Lewis, uh, mere Christianity. He thought C.S. Lewis was, was off, off his rocker. But eventually, A.N. Wilson came to faith. Notice what he writes. Watching a whole cluster of friends and my own mother die over a short space of time, convince me that pure materialist explanations for our mysterious human existence simply won't do on an intellectual level alone. The existence of language is one of the many phenomena of which love and music are the two strongest, which suggest that human beings are much more than collections of meat. They convince me that we are spiritual beings in the religion of the incarnation, talking about Christianity, asserting that God made humanity in his image and continually restores humanity in his image is simply true. He goes on to talk about the morality and the immorality of Nazi Germany. You've got to read the article. And he concludes with this. Read the first chapter of Genesis without prejudice and you will be convinced at once. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Materialism will never explain those words. My departure from the faith years ago was like a conversion on the road to Damascus, but my return to Christianity was slow but I know I shall never make the same mistake again. Christianity is personal. The gospel is personal, but it's also rational. And may God help us to engage with what we know, admit what we don't know, 
and learn more so that we may grow. Why else can the gospel change Charleston? There's one more reason I'd like to point out. And it's simply this. The gospel is motivational. The gospel can change Charleston because it's extremely motivational. Notice verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Number three, the gospel is extremely motivational. Now, the Apostle Paul says that the subject of his message or the heart of his message was repent and believe the gospel. Even yesterday, one of our friends asked a really good question. What is uh, repentance? What is the difference between repentance and faith? So we're going to use two chairs to illustrate it this morning. When we come to Christ, it's one step. John 3.16 refers to it this way. Whoever, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There are other times where Jesus comes into the town, he's kicking over tables, and he says, repent or perish, right? You're like, okay, what is it? Do I repent to be saved or do I believe to be saved? The best way I know to describe it and show the difference or show how the two are connected I'm going to stand on this chair. May the Lord help us. Okay. This is me believing in myself, believing in my own way, believing in my sin, relying on my own uh, self or pleasure, relying on the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, so this is what we all were before we became followers of Jesus, every one of us, whether no matter where you were. When we come to faith in Jesus, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We take that step by faith, which is a gift, and we step in and we receive Christ as our Savior. How many steps did I just take? I just took one. We could also say it this way, like Jesus did. I am turning from my old way and my old habits and my old faith in myself I'm going to believe in somebody else. I'm going to turn to somebody else and trust his way and follow his way and ask his way to characterize my life. So I come over to Jesus. How many steps did I just take right there? I just took one. Did I change in whom I was believing? Sure. Did I turn from one direction to the other? Absolutely. You could say repent. You could say believe. You can say confess. But the message is this, the gospel never leaves us the same, ever. It's more than just that we prayed the right words or we joined the church, but when we come to faith in Jesus, Paul says faith and repentance are, are like one of the same. They're two sides of the same coin as we turn and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Maybe you're wondering, are works involved, are good works involved in salvation? Before we answer, let's think about that question. Are good works involved in salvation? Well, they don't earn our salvation, right? Don't fire me yet. But let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now if we stop right there, we can declare salvation is not by works. We can declare it boldly. But what if we continued on to verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith, salvation is by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. Salvation is by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. So the Apostle Paul says in verse 20, and I had this underlined, he says, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, if you are a Christian, do something about it. My children did not become friend girls on their own volition. It was our choice. They became friend girls. We'll leave it at that because they're in the room. But our girls often hear their father say, act like friend girls should. They did nothing to bring themselves into the world. But now that they're in the world, they had better act like they should. And you did nothing to bring yourself into the world, yet call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But now that you're saved, God says, let's act like it. And one of the ways we get to act like it is by doing good works. In your bulletin today is an insert for may we serve. We don't get too theological on the bulletin inserts. We try to keep those pretty easy to read, but we could quote verse 20 when we look at may we serve and say, do good works in keeping with your repentance. Because you have the gift of salvation, let's do some good in this Charleston. You see there on the left, we have elderly and widows shut in care. Pastor Chad always has a great team organized. If you like good burgers, tell Pastor Richard Thompson how you want your burger cooked. He'll have it ready for you at the South Charleston Police Department. The Davis Child Shelter. I know our family plans to go there at least one night to that particular group, if not more. What an opportunity. A Clendon and flood relief. I noticed this this morning. 50 parking meter spots are going to get painted. I got a ticket in Charleston two weeks ago. cost me five bucks. Maybe that can do penance for future parking tickets in Charleston. Uh, Union Mission Thrift Store with Steve Corbin. Uh, Bible Center School, Mr. Backus would, would love to have an army. Uh, Bible Center Church, we're going to turn this place into the Garden of Eden. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be good. But we can do good works to show Charleston what the gospel looks like. What's the main point this morning? What's the main encouragement? It's simply this. Let's show the gospel. We'll say it this way. Let's grow deeper in the gospel so we can grow wider in the city. Let's grow deeper in the gospel so we can grow wider in the city. The more we learn the gospel, the more we study the gospel, the more we'll be a church, Charleston, 
can't live without. Every Sunday, we want to put tools back into your hands that help you live out the faith. Our team has put together a brand new webpage this week. Uh, it's called biblecenterchurch.com forward slash gospel. You can get to it on the app under media, and you'll see almost 40 resources, most of which are free, many of which are free, that you can use in your family, and you can learn the gospel and grow deeper in it that you might grow wider in your influence. There's no better way I can think to end our two-month series than with one last video reminder of what the gospel is all about. And then we'll pray. Our Father, I thank you for these men and women who have joined us to worship today. I pray for the man or woman, no matter what their age, that you have touched their heart to believe, to turn to trust in Jesus Christ that they would do that today, the end of this gospel series. May it be the end of a series, but the beginning of an era, that we would take the gospel to our city like we have never taken it before. I pray we would do it in words. I pray we would do it in works. And Father Charleston, may it forever be changed because we are a gospel people. We know there are many other believers in our city, go to other good churches. May we, may we partner with the body of Christ in Charleston to make a difference for the kingdom. But Lord, again, now I pray for the one who's not sure, the one you've touched his or her heart today. May they receive you as their savior with heads bowed and eyes closed. Before we sing this last song, let me invite you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, why not today? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll pray. I invite you to pray these words to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken inside. But I believe you love broken things. I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again the third day and I believe you'll make all things new Lord start with me make me new from the inside out help me to live and love like Jesus with heads bowed and eyes closed if you prayed that prayer will you let one of our pastors know today before you leave We'd love just to celebrate with you, follow up with you later this week, get some resources into your hand. I'll be here at the front all until the next service. I invite you to stop by or any of our pastors around the building, in the living room or out in the gathering space. Dear God, as we sing this last song, may the gospel be what characterizes Bible Center Church like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.